Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Do you want to learn how to manage your own investments? Are you ready to stop paying investment management fees and start building wealth? The DIY Investing Podcast is dedicated to providing you with the knowledge, skills, and resources you need to be a better investor. Learn how to make investments through the use of fundamental analysis, mental models, and business management insights. Now, here's your host, value investing expert, Trey Henninger. Hello and welcome to episode 54 of the DIY Investing Podcast. My name is Trey Henniger and I'm your host. In today's episode, I will be discussing business quality. Specifically, I will provide you a guide on how to classify companies by the quality of their business. This is a framework for an investing system that I use to maximize my returns by minimizing my mistakes. If you haven't already, please consider giving this podcast a rating and review in your podcast player. Your ratings and reviews help me to grow the podcast audience by and help more people by sharing your feedback. Thank you for your support. Now let's dive right on in. So what is a quality business? This is the question we're going to answer today. We're going to answer it by in a very qualitative manner. I'm going to describe what I believe a quality business is, and then I'm going to break it down into different subsections. I use this framework for my personal investing because it helps me make less mistakes. It helps me to improve my returns because I can focus on investing only in high-quality businesses. So what does it mean to be a high-quality business? In my opinion, one thing above all else determines whether a business is quote-unquote high-quality, and that is predictability. A high-quality business is a predictable business. And by predictable, I mean it's predictable in terms of the future cash flows that are available to owners. A high-quality business is not a growth business. A high-quality business is a business that you can reliably predict the cash flows in the future. And so this definition may differ from others you have heard that focus purely on other metrics, like, say, high returns on invested capital. A high-quality business is not simply a company with high returns on invested capital because the returns on invested capital can change and fluctuate over time. It's important to understand that these fluctuations are something you don't have control over and you can't exactly predict them. But you want to focus on the companies where you have some ability to predict. Because the more you can predict the future, the better your investment returns will be. Now that might sound obvious. And that you might say, hey, I can't predict the future. No one can predict the future. And that's true. But some companies are easier than others. Some companies allow you insight into the way their business works. Some companies have moats that protect them from competition. Some companies face no competition. And some companies have features that allow them to maintain a certain level of growth, even if it's a low level of growth, or maintain a certain level of earnings, even if it's those earnings don't grow at all. 
and you can rely on them out into the future. And we're talking about beyond simply a year or beyond five years or beyond 10 years, potentially. You're looking for those companies that allow you to understand their business well enough, understand the competitive marketplace, understand how often things change in that marketplace to allow you to predict the future to some degree. This is our goal. And this is the goal of this classification system. And so what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to help you by letting you understand that if you can find companies where you can predict the future for those companies, you can improve your investing performance. This is what I attempt to do with my portfolio, and I hope it will help you. And I think this is because the absolute hardest part of investing is predicting the future. So. How do I classify companies? My investing system for quality businesses falls into seven different tiers of classification. I want you to picture a pyramid. And this quality pyramid has seven tiers. Each each tier is progressively smaller than the tier before it. And as you go up the pyramid, you are finding higher and higher quality businesses. So you're going to have a lot of businesses at the bottom of the pyramid, and this is your absolute worst business for you to invest in. And you're going to have very, very few companies at the top of the pyramid. These are the absolute best companies for you to invest in because they are the highest quality. They're the most predictable. They are the companies you understand better than other people. They're companies that you understand better than the companies that are below them. And these tiers are the tiers that you're going to put companies in when you analyze them. So for clarity, when I begin researching a company, the first thing I'm doing is I'm classifying this company by business quality. Now, it's not instantaneous. This might take some time. Um, This might be quite difficult, actually. But what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to understand how the business makes money. I'm trying to understand what the competitive threats are. And I'm trying to understand where the company I'm reading about falls into this system. Because when I know where it falls in this system... I can immediately know whether I want to learn more and continue trying to determine whether I can invest in this company or whether I'm wasting my time because it's not as good of an idea as others. And that's really the struggle is that when you're looking out at the investment universe, there are millions of companies in the world today. There are way more companies than you can evaluate to invest in. Simply the primary public markets have tens of thousands of companies in them, and you cannot possibly research all of them in an investment lifetime. But what you can do is you can maximize the amount of time focused on the companies that you might actually invest in. Because every hour that you waste researching a company that you will never invest in is an hour that you could have been spending focusing on a company that had the potential for you to invest in. So what you're trying to do is quickly eliminate companies that you would never, ever invest in because that will allow you to focus more on the companies where you might invest. So that's the purpose of our quality pyramid. We're trying to rank companies by certain characteristics and classify them so that we know where they stand compared to other companies we looked at in the past. So, first I'm going to describe the names of the seven different tiers that I have, and then we're going to dive into each of the tiers in turn and talk about them. So, tier zero is at the very bottom of the pyramid, and I call it the two hard pile. Now, the two hard pile came about and was named by either Warren Buffett or Charlie Munger talking about how they think about investments. So I've borrowed that terminology for our quality pyramid. Tier one is directly above the two hard pile, and that's speculations. Tier two 
is above speculations, and those are bad businesses. Tier three is above bad businesses, and that's what I call average businesses. Tier four is above average, which is the high quality businesses. Tier five are excellent quality businesses, and tier six are generational businesses. And those are the seven tiers, starting from tier zero up through tier six. And at the very top is tier six, where you have the generational businesses. These are the best businesses that you can invest in and that you can understand from a predictability standpoint into the future. So when we think about these seven tiers, there's really two sections. And I like to section it off into... Thinking about have this pyramid again, again, you have the pyramids, tier zeros at the bottom with the two hard pile and generationals all at the very top. That's tier six. And when I think about this pyramid, you have a byline. And that byline is in red. It's bold red. Everything above the byline is something that you might consider buying. And everything below the byline is something to avoid. That byline sits nestled between tier three, average businesses, and tier four, high quality businesses. And that byline is the piece that you really need to think about and really need to understand. When you're classifying companies, on one hand, all you really need to know is this below or above my byline. And Am I willing to consider buying this company? Now, some people are going to have their byline in a different spot, which is where I don't think that this is necessarily a hard and fast rule. But what I like to do is, is I want to only buy high quality businesses. Now, there's certainly been times and a lot of time, and I still own companies that I might categorize as an average business. And that's just below my byline. But for those companies, it has to be super cheap. You're talking about incredibly undervalued companies in order to make that works. And the other piece is, it goes back to Ben Graham's statement. At what price and on what terms? So you might be wanting different terms than simply buying the common shares if you're going to buy an interest in an average or bad company. So these are the types of things you're trying to think about. But when you look, think about this pyramid that I'm giving you. Think about a byline between average and high quality. So let's go back to tier zero, the two hard pile. This is at the very base of our pyramid. And this two hard pile is where a huge chunk of the companies that you're going to look at are going to go. And these are going to be the companies that when you look at them, it's just really hard for you to understand, or it's difficult for you to make sense of something. Or when you look at it, you really don't know where to classify this company. And you spend an hour, you spend a couple hours reading about it, and you're just like, I don't know what I think about this. I don't know if it's a high quality company. I don't know if it's a low quality company. I don't know where to put this in my ranking system. So you throw it in the too hard pile. And in the terms of what Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger would talk about, they use their topic of the mental model circle of competence. And this is the area of things that they understand and are able to invest in. Now, that circle is going to be different for everybody. Some people are going to have a very small focused circle and some are going to have a much larger circle. Ideally, this circle of competence will grow over time. As you invest more over the years, you will grow your circle of competence to understand more companies. But certainly, when you're getting started investing, when you start researching companies, your circle of competence is going to be very small, which means a vast majority of the companies you look at should go in your too hard pile. And so this too hard pile... It's just to say that an investor does not need to have an opinion on every single company. So focus on your circle of competence and only focus on the companies that you can have an opinion on. Now, your opinion might be that it's a bad company. That's fine. But you need to focus only on the companies that you can have an opinion on. And this too hard pile is where I put every company that when I hear about it, I may or may not come back in the future and review it again, but at the time I look at it and classify it, 
I just don't know where it should go. So that captures the two hard pile. There's really not a lot to say on it other than put everything there that you don't understand when you're looking at it. Now, that's not to say that, you, you know, you can spend a little bit of time, but it, I mean, if you pick it up and you're just like, I don't understand this, then put it in the too hard pile. You can come back to it later. You can flag it as something to read about later or flag it as you never want to read about it again. But, you know, put it in your too hard pile. And I really like to classify these things. Um, I like to write on my blog, DIYinvesting.org about my business quality analysis and I write them up as business quality reports. And if it and this is a good way for me to categorize and document the research that I'm doing. Um and this is the sort of thing I would recommend to other investors too. Write down your analysis, write down your results. If you follow this system that I'm outlining, write down, hey, this is too hard. Put it in a spreadsheet, put it online, publish a blog post and say, it's too hard, I don't understand. And that way you have a document, like I've looked at this before, and, and you can even put in there, like I don't understand, you know, let's say for Coca-Cola, I don't understand why Coca-Cola is buying its bottlers. I don't understand why Coca-Cola is selling its bottlers. Or I don't understand Netflix's handling of earnings on its TV shows and movies. I don't understand how they're documenting the way it's paid for. Just to say, I don't understand, it's too hard. Maybe in the future when you look back, you'll understand that and you can reanalyze it. So the next piece is above too hard is tier one. And tier one is speculation. So, So for instance, last thing on the tier zero. So while you might in some circumstances, buy a speculation, a bad business, or an average business. You should never, ever buy a company that goes in your too hard pile because you just admitted it was too hard for you to understand. So don't ever buy a company that's in your too hard pile. Um, so, you know, I mentioned this red line on my, on my pyramid that's my buy line and it's placed between average and high quality. But there's a second, like, black line just above the two hard pile. That's like, do not cross. Um, because if you're buying stuff you don't understand, you're going to get yourself into trouble. So let's step, step over that do not cross line. We're going to go into the back above it and say we're in speculation territory. So what's a speculation? So for me, a speculation quality business is something that I use as a catch-all term for many different types of businesses, many different types of red flags that to me say, this is not a company I want to own right now. It might be a new company. This might be a startup. This might be a company that there's very promising things about it, um, but there's also pieces that are really hard to understand. But there, there's quite a few little pieces that are going to trigger me and say, this is a speculation. So let's go through some of these triggers that would make me throw a company immediately into my section ranking number one. And the first one is fraud potential. So I don't need to prove that a company is fraudulent to eliminate it from consideration. Simply the possibility that a company is a fraud is sufficient for me to ignore that company as a future investment. And I'm going to throw it into speculation. I'm going to classify it as this company is a speculation. And I'll classify it with speculation-fraud potential. And again, all that's necessary is a red flag. This could be something um, like some auditor notes that I don't agree or a lot of insider... Um, dealings between management, the company, some side corporations. Um, this could be the company having a bunch of shell companies in different locations around the world, whether it be Bermuda, China, um, Russia, places that have reputations that are not good. And this could be, you know, I don't have a lot of you know, understanding of what those places might be. Um, but I know, but China was given as an example, for instance, because there's been a lot of companies I've looked at that 
are usually very, very cheap. And the first thought that you might have is, are these earnings real? And if you're thinking, oh, these earnings aren't real, then that's kind of like a fraud potential. And 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 all you need is that little like question mark, that feeling that something's not right. And you should immediately just dis- disregard it because there's so many companies out there. I talked about how there's millions of companies in the world. There's tens of thousands that are easily accessible for you in the public market. You can make a lot of money without ever having that fraud potential red flag leap up in the back of your mind. So if it does, you don't have to be right. Just say, you know what? I'm going to move on. I'll pass it off. If it is a fraud, great. You avoided it. If it's not and someone makes a lot of money, good for them. Um, so your your reasons can be your own. But if it falls under a fraud potential category, put it under speculation and move on. The second category here in speculation is untrustworthy management. Now, again, this is a red flag is all that's necessary. Um, this can be very similar to the things that I talked about in fraud potential. Um, you don't need to prove that management's doing something wrong to eliminate it from your consideration. If you don't like management, that is sufficient reason for you not to invest in the company. When you put money into a company, when you invest in shares in a company, what you're doing is you're becoming a partner to the CEO and the chairman of the board and the directors of that business in managing and running that business. You're becoming a capital invested partner in that business. And just like if you were to partner with someone in real life on a project or partner with them to solve a problem, you're going to want to know, are they trustworthy? Are they people that you think understand how your money should be spent, understand how your money should be used? And if the answer is no, then don't invest. And I think a lot of times this is something people might um, make an exception for like, oh, well, you know, management's not really what I'd like. Uh, They tend to have some different views than me, but they've been doing well. Um, So it could work out and, you know, you just, you might ignore it. And and what that is, it's the red flag. It's not something that says that has to eliminate investment. But when you see red flags, usually there's more that you don't see. And so for me, again, a red flag is all that necessary. If I get a red flag and a bad feeling about management, and this is just a bad feeling about management that's non-fraud potential. It's just I don't think they're trustworthy or they, they're too focused on their own compensation, anything along these lines, then I might eliminate it and just say it's untrustworthy management, it's speculation, tier one quality company, which of course for those, again, can change. If management changes, then then you might come in and say, hey, it's, let, let's look at it, at it again. Okay, so another way that something will fall into speculation is if the company is unprofitable. So if the company has zero or negative earnings, then that's an immediately kicker into the speculation category for me. So this is going to catch a lot of companies. Um, There are billion-dollar companies that are going to be flagged as speculation because they're not making money. And others are going to... These might be darlings of the investment world. Um, but if I, if they're not making a profit, then I don't trust them in terms of long-term predictability of how much profit I will receive. Because again, we're focused on the predictability of cash flows. Well, if right now they don't have cash flows or they're losing money, then how can I be sure about the predictability of their future cash flows? I can't. So it becomes a speculation. So, and again, you have billion-dollar companies, companies like, you know, I think Uber and Lyft still don't make a profit. Now, they're private, but as soon as they IPO, um, or maybe some of them are public, maybe Uber's public, um, I don't pay attention to those companies because, again, if a company's unprofitable, it's not valuable to you as an investor. All you care about is the sum total of your future cash flows. And you can certainly make a lot of money by purchasing companies that are unprofitable and then holding them through them becoming profitable and then being able to harness that gap that has now been bridged. But 
under Ben Graham's definitions, that is a speculation. You can make money speculating, but it's certainly a speculation. And I'm, I'm focused on investments and not speculations. Along the lines of unprofitable would be something that where the earnings are profitable but unpredictable. So if you cannot forecast earnings at all, and I'm not saying making a forecast where you're sure you're right or something, but if you look at and you can't forecast earnings at all, then the earnings are unpredictable and it's not worth you investing. You know, if earnings are going from, you know, a million dollars this year to $2 million next year, to $200,000 the year after that, to $500,000 the year after that, to losing a, a million dollars the year after that, then yeah, they're making money, but it's unpredictable. I mean, how, how do you know how much money they're going to make over the next 10 years? You have no idea. You can guess, but you're just as likely to be wrong as you are right. There's no ability to be certain in your analysis to any certain any any degree. And so for me, it becomes a speculation. Now, a lot of people find ways to make money in this market. And that's great. But for me, I want to focus on the high quality companies. I want to focus on the companies I can predict. So if the earnings are unpredictable, it goes into speculation. Along with that, I have cyclical companies. If the company is periodically and unpredictably unprofitable, purely based on the business cycle, then that's a speculation for me. Now, it's okay if the company is cyclical, but they're profitable through all parts of the cycle. That might be a bad business. It might be an average business. But if they're profitable through all parts of the cycle, so if they're profitable in 2005, 2006, 2007, 2008, 2009, 2010, they go all the way through the recession and they're profitable through all of it, then that's not a cyclical speculation to me. It might be a cyclical bad business, it might be a cyclical average business, but as long as they can maintain profitability and the only piece that is unpredictable is when this market's going to turn, then that's okay. And so that leaves us with one more way that I put something into the speculation category. And this is bankruptcy risk. So this could be many things, but if you're looking at the company and you think there's a decent chance or there's even a small chance of bankruptcy. Now, obviously, every company has a non-zero chance of bankruptcy. But some companies, you look at it and you say, okay, yeah, Coca-Cola has a non-zero chance of bankruptcy. But no one seriously thinks that bankruptcy is a possibility anytime soon. That's not bankruptcy risk. Bankruptcy risk is something where reasonable people can look at the company and say, you know what? They might be bankrupt five years from now. They might be bankrupt 10 years from now. There's a there's a possibility of bankruptcy. I'm not saying it will happen, not saying it's likely to happen, but there's a there's a there's a decent possibility of bankruptcy. So like Coca-Cola might have a non-zero possibility of bankruptcy, but you know, if you look at a company like GameStop, which I've talked about in a few episodes before, or you look at some um, companies like, let's say, Uber or Lyft or, you know, these companies that are very high debt load or they're leveraged or have off-balance sheet liabilities, uh, they, could be, they could be bankrupt in 10 years. We can argue over what that probability is, but I'd say instead of just simply non-zero, well, now you're talking 5% chances, 10% chances. Well, those, those become more significant because a bankruptcy means that your money goes to zero. So you want to avoid companies that have a, a bankruptcy risk that's more than just non-zero because every company has a non-zero bankruptcy risk, but you're trying to avoid companies that have a bankruptcy risk even as high as 5% sometime in the next five, five or 10 years because that over a long holding period can lead to a lot of problems in your portfolio if you're buying a lot of companies that have these 5 to 10% bankruptcy risks, let alone if that percent is much higher. Um, and, and some key flags for this would be very high debt loads, um, the companies being over leveraged, um, off balance sheet liabilities, lawsuits, etc. Anything that 
could cause them to have a bankruptcy risk here. Okay, so I've spent some time on speculations in the too hard pile, and it's probably been a little longer than expected, but that's because a lot of companies fall into these two categories. And so more time is spent on some of these lower quality businesses because you need to be able to identify them and not skip over them. So let's move on from speculation and talk about bad businesses. What makes a bad business? So again, we've already eliminated a lot of things. So what's left that would make us a bad business instead of, say, an average quality business? Well, a bad business is a profitable business. Again, if it's not profitable, it's a speculation. A bad business is a profitable business with positive free cash flow. A bad business is also has unleveraged and leveraged returns on equity of less than 10%. So 10% is a very critical number here. This is a number I chose because my discount rate is 10%. I expect to earn 10% returns on my invested capital when I invest in business. And so if a company that I'm buying earns less than 10% returns, then there's a very low probability that if I were to buy and hold a stock of a bad business, that I would actually earn my 10% return. It's not to say you couldn't make more than 10% if you're flipping it at a low price from a low price to a high price. Classic value investing does that. But what I want to do is I want to flip high quality businesses from low prices to high prices because then I'm even have an even greater margin of safety. So if the business is earning less than 10% return on equity, I'm not interested. That's a bad business. Number three, a bad business is capital intensive. If a business has to put a lot of capital to work in order to earn its returns, it's going to be a bad business. And then at number four, declining businesses or liquidating businesses are thrown into the bad business category, which means that if a business earns higher than higher returns on equity than 10%, but it's getting smaller every year, or it's liquidating, or it's closing shop, or expected to close shop in the next five years, that's a bad business. It's not something where you can buy the stock and expect it to be around 10 to 15 years from now. You know, if you were to buy the stock and it does work out, it might be because they are um, paying out a decent amount of their cash, or they're giving you cash back to you from your investments because they're selling a factory or something along those lines. Can that work as an investment? Sure. Um, you can make money doing that, and a lot of people do, but it's a bad business. It's not where you want to spend a lot of your time. Um, it's very time intensive, and you don't get as much return on your time as you do from potentially other types of investments. So the key here is, is that all of these characteristics of a bad business are the types of things where you don't want the company reinvesting its capital. You want the company paying its capital out to you. And that's not how a lot of these things are going to work on these bad businesses. If they're earning really low returns, you want them to give you 100% of the free cash flow to shareholders because the shareholder can get a better return by investing in the stock market than they can in the bad business. Um, So every investor of a bad business if they're following a similar strategy as me, is trying to do it on a short-term basis. And that's just not a reliable long-term way to make money. Granted, an alternative name for bad businesses is cigar butts, and that was coined by Warren Buffett. He made a lot of money by buying bad businesses at low prices and selling them at high prices. And and value investors tend to like to do this. And I'm certainly a value investor, so I understand this perspective. And a lot of times, value investors will consider investing in bad businesses when they show up as net-nets. Net-net investing was made famous by Benjamin Graham. It's where you buy a business at less than its working capital or less than you know the cash that it has on hand. And it's so cheap that even if the business is bad, it can make a good, profitable investment. Problem is, is that's very rare. It's hard to find those things before other investors. Is it possible? Yes. But if you're thinking about how do you spend your time as an investor, where should you focus your thinking? Where should you focus your time and effort? If you identify a company as a bad business, most likely 
you're going to be better off moving on to the next company. Classify the business as bad, mark it down so you don't spend time on it in the future, but move on to finding a different business that might be seen as a bad business, but you actually think is high quality because you're going to have a better chance of return in that situation. Okay, so let's move on from bad businesses and let's get into a category which is very, very broad now. Now, I mean, bad businesses are pretty broad because there's a lot of them out there. You're going to, it's, it's, I gave a lot of different pieces on those definitions. Again, you had profitable, unlevered cash flows below 10% or levered cash flows below 10%, capital intensive, declining businesses. There's a lot of businesses that fall into that. There's also a lot of businesses that fall into this third category, average business. Now, average businesses is a huge category. Um, if there's any category that's bigger than the ones below it, it might be average quality because average businesses tend to fall in this. And the, the simply name average is to meant to say that most businesses are going to fall into average or lower quality. It's going to be rare and uncommon to find businesses that are higher quality than average. And so I'm going to have pretty broad scope here for what falls into this. Um, but on a qualitative metric, I describe an average business as characterized by the lack of an exceptional financial characteristic in its business operations. So what you'll tend to find in a high quality, excellent or generational business is there'll be some sort of exceptional quality in its business that other businesses don't have, which means an average business is defined by the lack of that characteristic. Most companies are average. So even when you were to take, if you were to take your too hard pile and you filtered it out, most of the stuff that's left in your too hard pile are going to end up as average or bad quality businesses. So an average quality business has the following traits. Again, number one, it's still profitable. It's a profitable business with positive free cash flow. Number two, an average business is profitable business that can potentially reinvest its earnings at an adequate rate of return. Now, it's not required, but it could reinvest earnings, maybe not all of its earnings, maybe only a small part of its earnings, but when it does reinvest earnings, it's going to be able to reinvest them at least at 10% returns or higher. And the other piece is that an average business might have unleveraged returns on equity of less than 10%, while having leveraged returns on equity, which means including debt, of say 10 to 15%. An average business might be capital intensive or somewhat capital intensive. So it's going to be less capital intensive than what you might have seen in a bad quality business, which is why it has higher returns on equity. An average business is a commodity business. It might be dependent upon commodity prices. It might be something like an oil producer. It sells oil. It might be something like a bank. Most banks tend to fall into an average business because money tends to be a commodity. They they don't have control over the price of money. If the company doesn't have control over the price of its goods, then it tends to be a commodity. It's something that's traded worldwide. So anything that's produced as a commodity, whether that's corn, soybeans, um, like I said, I mentioned oil, natural gas, all of these are commodity businesses. They tend to fall into average quality, which is why a lot of businesses can quickly be categorized as average quality unless you know a lot extra about them. If it's an oil producer, start it out in average until you know different. Um, another piece, the sixth item here for average businesses is that they face a lot of competition. Almost every business out there faces a lot of competition. Competition is fierce. You'll read this in the 10K. It's going to say there's a section in the 10K about competition. And they're going to say, we face high competition from many different competitors. Um, We compete on these different aspects, price, quality, customer service, those various things. And you're going to read, the the management's going to tell you, we face a lot of competition. You know, these are the different, you know, we might be smaller than our competition. We might um, have less money than our competition, all sorts of stuff. That's an average business. That's now some higher quality businesses might say similar things. Um, and there's different stuff you have to look for. 
and all that comes down to and so all of these things that I just talked about in terms of commodity facing a lot of competition is that these companies lack pricing power. They don't have the ability to sell their product for more than what it's worth. And they don't have the ability or they they might have the ability to, to you know sell it before it's more than it's worth, but they're not going to have the ability to sell it for much more than that. They're not going to have the ability to say sell it for you know, 20% or 30% more than their competitors. You know, if you're selling oil, your oil is just like other people's oil. So if oil, the cost of oil is $50 a barrel, you're going to sell your oil at $50 a barrel. You can't sell your oil for $60 a barrel while everyone else is selling their oil for $50 a barrel. Um, so you lack pricing power. You don't get to choose the price of your goods and you can't make those prices distinct from the cost of your inputs. If you have to simply, you know, sell it at a market price, average business. It's a very easy way to say this is an average business. And that's okay. You can make money investing in average businesses, but you should be aware when you are doing so. So this is an easy one to choose and to categorize. So if lack of pricing power describes an average business, then having pricing power is the key defining feature of an above average business or what I'm calling a high quality business. So we're going to take a step now above the buy line. And these are the companies that are better to purchase than all the ones I've mentioned before. They're not average. They're not bad. They're not speculations and they don't fall into your too hard pile. And these are high quality businesses. The first step up your ladder after average is high quality. A high quality business has pricing power. That means they can sell their product differentiated in the market. And here you're going to start seeing companies like consumer packaged good companies, companies like a Colgate, um, companies that can brand their products, companies like a Coca-Cola. Um, although I think Coca-Cola intends to fall in a higher spot than this even. Um, but high quality businesses describe the businesses that are high quality, excellent, and generational. They're all different types and levels of high quality businesses and high quality businesses. Number one, have pricing power. They are not competing based on price. They might compete on service quality. They might compete on product quality. They might compete um, based upon the availability of their product. Any number of things. Their technology might be better, but they're not competing on price. When you look at Apple, do they compete on price? No, they have the highest price products in the market, but people still buy them. When you look at Google, do they compete on price? No. They have the best search engine, so they can price their ads at whatever they want, and they provide the searching for free. When you buy Colgate toothpaste, you're not going to buy generic toothpaste that just says toothpaste on it. You're going to, for, you know, you could buy that toothpaste, you know, if people were willing to sell it for maybe 50 cents a tube. Instead, you might pay three, four dollars a tube for Colgate toothpaste. Now, why does it cost eight times more for Colgate toothpaste? Because Colgate has pricing power. So when you think about a high-quality business, it has to have pricing power. So basically, this is not a bad or average business, and it's not an excellent business. And we'll talk about the characteristics of an excellent business in a minute. But high-quality, there's only one characteristic I use to determine whether a company is high quality. And if you don't have it, you're not a high quality business and it's pricing power. That can be a moat, that can be brand, that can be any number of things that allow you to have pricing power. But if you do not have pricing power, then you are an average quality business or lower. What I want to buy when I'm making my investments is I only want to buy high quality businesses. I want to buy companies that don't compete on price because if they can raise prices, they can reliably and predictably raise the investor's return. And that's the goal here. 
We're not categorizing businesses so that we can say one business is better than the other and brag about the businesses that we own being high quality. We focus on buying high quality businesses because they can reliably give us longer term returns into the future. So high quality is easy to cover. It gets a little bit more difficult talking about excellent quality businesses because now we're talking about high quality businesses with another step up. These are high quality businesses. They have pricing power, but they have something else that makes them a little bit different. They have something else that puts them on another level in addition to pricing power. And there's a few different characteristics that you want to look for. Number one is some sort of unassailable competitive advantage. Some examples of this might be a low-cost producer. So in addition to having pricing power, they can also produce the products cheaper than everyone else. Another example might be culture. You know, Southwest Airlines, while maybe lacking pricing power, maybe having pricing power, think about it for yourself, they are known for a culture of being relatively low-cost, a happy place to work at, good capital allocation, They've managed to not lose money in the airline business when many different airlines have lost money over time. Why is that? It's culture. Patents. Uh, You might have pharmaceutical companies. They can sell drugs at very high prices because of patents. Um, Tech companies tend to be able to sell their products at very high prices because of patents. These are government-protected products that prevent competition. Now, they're temporary, but they're protected by the government. Intellectual property is another. When you think about companies with intellectual property, now again, this can fall into many different things. It could be brand, um, and a lot of times it is brand, but it's it's some type of property that can't be copied, whether it's a copyright because you write a novel um, or copyright for store for the stories you create. Um, movies tend to fall under this. Um, Disney's a great example of intellectual property. Video games are a great example of intellectual property. You're the maker of Fortnite. Can't have another company make a product called Fortnite, though they can make another product that basically does very similar things. A shooter, um, you have 100 people, they fight, um, different things like that. But you can't copy the brand Fortnite. So Fortnite has intellectual property behind it. The things they create in that have some legal protection. Um, Brand, again, those things I talked about before. Uh, And brand on its own doesn't matter. Just because something's branded doesn't mean that it's an unassailable competitive advantage. But it has to be something that people have not found a way to compete with. Another example might be a monopoly or an oligopoly. If you're the only company offering a product, that's a pretty unassailable competitive advantage. If you're an oligopoly, you're only one of two, three, or four people offering a product. Um, My best example of an oligopoly would be in the United States, you have internet and cable providers. And these would be your Comcast, your Time Warner, your AT&T, those type of companies. They operate in oligopolies. They tend to either be the only provider of internet or cable in their area or one of only two people providing internet and cable in the area, which means they don't compete on price. They can raise prices every year and the consumer can do nothing about it. You basically can cancel or accept the price increase. Um, That is the example of a pretty unassailable competitive advantage. It's very hard to compete with that because no competition exists. Number two, and, and I hesitate to put it in here, but because it's not really about business quality, it's really about management, but it's something I think about and it might put me over the edge on the quality of the business being excellent versus high quality, but it tends to be a history of shareholder-friendly capital allocation. Um, and, it, and it's really more analyzing the management instead of business, but a lot of times they're very linked and it's hard to separate them. But if the management reliably plays and raises dividends, the management reliably uh, buys back stock when the stock's undervalued, um, those sort of behaviors can really demonstrate an excellent quality business because what it's doing 
the history of that allocation shows the history and reliability and predictability of the cash flows. Management can't make those decisions unless the cash flows are there to do that. And so you can use that as a flag, but instead of a red flag, it might be a green flag now to say, hey, this is very positive performance. It might be a predictable business. Um, Which leads us to number three. These are typically non-cyclical businesses. So a high-quality business can have pricing power, but might still be a cyclical business because maybe people buy less of it in recessions. This could be something like luxury boats or something uh, where people buy less luxury boats in recessions, but during good times, they're going to buy you know a branded luxury boat over a non-branded luxury boat. They know the brand, they're going to buy the brand. Um, so that sort of business would be stuck at high quality if it ha- was able to have pricing power, but it could not reach the excellent quality tier which is very similar to number four, anti-fragility. So this means that these companies can tend to get stronger during times of hardship instead of weaker. A good example of this is something like a Coca-Cola. Even during the Great Depression, people bought, would spend their last quarter or nickel on a Coca-Cola because the joy it brought them the feeling of satisfaction, all those things. And it shows the sheer level of strength of that business, that even when things are tough, the business gets stronger relative to competitors. And when competitors are dying off, they get stronger. Sometimes an excellent quality business has unique characteristics that don't even fit into these categories. And these in particular are a surefire sign of an excellent quality business. One example would be a negative cost of growth. So a negative cost of growth means that most companies, if they want to grow, have to take the earnings. So if you earned a million dollars and you want to grow to $2 million next year, most companies have to take some of that money, say half a million dollars, and invest it in new capital, invest it in more people, invest it in different things, and use that investment to grow the earnings for next year. Some companies don't. Some companies can grow without ever investing more capital. Seize Candy is a great example of this, and this is one of the companies owned by Warren Buffett, and it was an example that he has used in the past of a very high-quality business, and it's because they sell chocolate. He doesn't have to invest more capital in able to grow the business, in large part due to their pricing power, but sometimes pricing power is simply used to offset additional costs. Here we're talking about your cost of growth is negative or zero. Good example of this is advertising agencies like Omnicom. It's a great example and a very high quality business. Number two, in terms of unique characteristics. So the number two is an ability to return greater than 100% of their earnings to shareholders as dividends or buybacks. So typically, if Most companies you look at, if they're earning a million dollars a year, they might have dividends being paid out of $200,000 a year. So let's say 20% of their earnings are being returned as dividends. And maybe they return another 10% of earnings as share buybacks. So they have a 30% return of earnings to shareholders each year. And they're using the other 70% for growth or, or whatever. Um, maintenance, that, that sort of thing. The ability to return greater than 100% is exceedingly rare. And so again, this is going to be the types of companies that have a cost of growth potentially negative than zero. Um, and they're going to be typically be related. But if you see one, you're probably going to see the other. But if not, either one on their own is a very positive feature. So this would be the sort of thing where a company earns a million dollars but is able to pay dividends of $1.1 million. And they're able to do this for basically ever. So a lot of companies can do this in any one year. They might have a bad earnings year, but they continue paying their dividends. They normally make a million dollars a year. They normally pay $200,000 a year in dividends, um, but they have a bad year. They only earn $100,000, but they still pay $200,000 in dividends. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is a company that's growing, company that doesn't even have to be growing, but Every year, they earn a million dollars, and every year, they pay dividends of $1.1 How do they do that? 
They're earning incredibly high returns on capital. They're earning they their growth comes free and it causes those earnings and the way the accounting works to them to be able to pay out cash greater than their earnings for a very long period of time. So you're talking 5, 10, 20, 30 years, they can maintain this sort of thing. That is a key identifier of an excellent quality business. This could be the result of you know negative working capital, float, or some sort of cost plus pricing scheme with an inflation kicker. So we've now addressed six of our seven tiers, all the way up from high quality to high quality and excellent quality. But we've, we have one left, and that is generational businesses. The defining feature of our highest quality tier, the defining feature of a generational business is the long-term durability of the after-tax, after-inflation owner's earnings. So generational businesses typically meet the requirements of an excellent business while also having product or business characteristics that offer multi-decade or infinite future durability. So these companies are exceedingly rare because your goal with a generational business should be to acquire them when they offer attractive long-term returns and never sell. These companies are the foundation of what I like to see in a DIY investing portfolio. They're your storm shelter in bad times, your bad, your bedrock in good times because the, a lot of times the cost of growth is either 0% or less or they're able to be so reliable and so predictable that you don't have to worry about them forming a significant portion of your portfolio. And the key here is really that multi-decade or infinite future durability. Very few companies can achieve this while also being high quality. These are the sorts of companies that you know there is always a need for them to exist. Now you can't necessarily predict this one company will still exist. Many things can happen. The future is unpredictable. But if a company is in the situation where it has excellent quality characteristics, and at the same time you can say, this company has a reason to exist 30 years from now, and there's an incredibly high, greater than 80-90% chance that it will be this same company with greater earnings than they have today. Their earnings are not going to decline over that time. That's a generational business. And my best example of a generational business that I have is actually posted for free on the DIYinvesting.org website. And it's an example that I've where I covered Disney. And Disney has unassailable competitive advantages with their intellectual property. They're an intellectual property machine. They produce movies and stories and characters that cannot be replicated. No one else can make an Avengers movie. No one else can make a movie about Mickey Mouse. Now, I think that might be coming changing because Mickey Mouse is about to go off uh, and become in the public domain. But the concept is, is that they own brands like Star Wars, Avengers, ESPN, numerous other brands that have huge power in the marketplace, huge power, pricing power. And there's no conceivable way to look at them today and say they're going to go away. When you see the pricing power of Cinderella, um, when you see the pricing power of Frozen, when you see the ability for these stories to resonate with people, stories resonate in every generation. Stories go across generations. Stories can resonate with grandparents, parents, and children alike, and they can all go to the same thing because stories resonate with people. Um, and there's no reason to look at that and think that 20 years from now, stories will stop having power and that the types of stories being told by Disney will stop having power in the marketplace. Now, you could argue that Disney can make mistakes and they could certainly go away because they're making errors at the management level. But that's very different from saying we have an excellent quality business and the durability of that business is incredibly long. Disney is proving this durability right now because they're producing movies that are basically copies of old movies they made a generation ago. You had Lion King produced 20 years ago. They just produced Lion King over again. 
And all they did was take the exact same movie and update it with newer technology. And they made a billion dollars from that. (laughs) I have no better example of a good generational business. And that's why I've made this one as a free one on my website. Because what I've done is I consider determining the quality of a company an incredibly important part of your investing process. If you can focus only on buying high quality companies, you can limit your mistakes. And limiting your mistakes is the number one thing you can do to improve your investing portfolio in the future. Because if you think about it and you really think, what would my returns be if I didn't have losses? What would my returns be is if my mistakes went from 20% to 10% or 40% to 20%. And a key way to do that is to focus on buying high quality companies because they're more predictable. And A lot of times investors, especially value investors, will make mistakes because they're buying companies that they can't really predict, but they fool themselves into thinking that they can predict. And so what I do on my website is I document my personal investing research and the company quality analysis that I do, and I produce company quality business reports. Those business reports are available for listeners of this podcast and people who support me on Patreon so that I can continue to produce them and put them out. So I believe the work that I do on business quality reports and analyzing these businesses and sorting companies by their business quality characteristics is incredibly valuable, um, which is why I do them for myself and my own investing, but also why I want to limit the number of people that it's freely available to. I don't want these to be freely copied and published everywhere because if I find a generational quality business, I want the ability to continuously invest in that company in the future, which means I need to limit the information that I put out about it because most companies that are high quality are known to be high quality, but some companies that are high quality are not. And When you find a company that's high quality and it's not known to be high quality, that's an exceptional opportunity. So I publish my investing research on my website, diyinvesting.org, and you can become a patron and supporter of my work here in this podcast, here on my website at diyinvesting.org slash p-a-t-r-o-n. That's diyinvesting.org slash patron. And as a patron, If you support me at $5 a month, then you can get access to all of my investing research around business quality. I publish these business quality reports, and those reports are available exclusively to $5 a month members of my membership investing website. So when you become a premium member, you can choose different levels to support me. But if you support me at at least $5 a month, you'll be able to see my investing quality reports. Um, I produce a few that are public every once in a while to give examples out there. Um, I encourage you to read the Disney quality report if you want to understand the type of content that I discuss in these reports. And I will have a link to Disney's free business quality report in the show notes to this podcast. But if you'd like to access some of the other companies that I have business quality reports on, these are going to be the companies that I'm doing research on. They're going to be the companies that interest me. And a lot of the companies in my portfolio will have a previously published business quality report. And you'll get insight into how I'm doing that research. With that said, you certainly have no need to do the support this. If you'd like to support the show without a financial means, just please consider giving the podcast a rating and review. Your ratings and reviews help me to grow the show audience. And I really appreciate that support. I wholeheartedly appreciate you taking the time to show me your support by leaving a rating and review in your podcast player, whether it's Apple Podcasts, the Spotify app, whatever app you're using to listen to this show, please consider giving me a rating review. If you're listening on YouTube, like and subscribe so you can continue to get more videos. But you certainly don't need to um, support me financially in this way. You can do this research on your own and you should learn how to do this research on your own. But what I encourage you is when you think about your investments, classify your companies 
into business quality tiers. You can use my system or you can make up your own system. But when you do that, write it down. Write down your, your how you've classified that business and why. It can be a short one pager. It can be as long as you want. But classify businesses that you research so that you can limit your mistakes in the future and you can learn from your past decisions so that if you look back and you say this was a successful investment, well, you can understand was that a high quality or low quality business when you originally thought about it? Was it a failed investment? Was it a high quality or low quality business when you originally thought about it? And that will allow you to learn and get better as an investor over time. Your goal as an investor is to earn an acceptable return on your investment capital over your investing lifetime. One way to improve on the odds of achieving this goal is to classify the companies you research into quality tiers. By always beginning your research with a quality classification, you can limit your investing mistakes and maximize your margin of safety during the quantitative part of the investing process that follows. So thank you for listening to this episode. The full show notes for this episode, including my outline for today's podcast, are available on diyinvesting.org slash episode 54. Thank you for listening. And until next time, stop paying fees, start building wealth. Thank you for listening to the DIY Investing Podcast. Please visit our website and subscribe to our email list at DIYinvesting.org for guides, videos, and resources to help make you a better investor. The DIY Investing Podcast is presented for general informational and entertainment purposes only. I have not considered your specific situation or risk profile, and I have not provided investment advice. The information presented on the DIY Investing Podcast should not be construed as investment advice. The views and opinions expressed on the DIY Investing Podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's host or sponsors. DIY Investing, its producers, sponsors, and host, Trey Henniger, shall not be liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based upon information or viewpoints presented on the DIY Investing Podcast.